the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. I'm your host, Nate Elliott, as we join Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Exodus. God has been laying out the ceremonial law for the children of Israel. We have seen how the tabernacle and all the ceremonial instruments point to God's throne room and Jesus being the perfect high priest and sacrifice for all of mankind. We will look at the altar of incense and the bronze laver as we join Pastor Will in Exodus chapter 40, verse 1. We've gone through the tabernacle and most of its furniture and looked at the priest garments and the consecration ceremony for the priests. And when you get to chapter 30, it almost kind of feels like an afterthought, like the Lord's almost like, oh, wait, I forgot about these few furniture pieces, you know, and and these few items. It almost kind of feels like an afterthought or even kind of anticlimactic. But each of these topics that are addressed in chapter 30 and 31, they're put off to this point for a specific reason, because they all deal with the work that the priests will do. And so without a consecrated priesthood, it makes no sense to even begin talking about them. Without understanding the the tabernacle and how man can even approach God at first through sacrifice, it makes no sense to talk about these other things. You see, God is after a work of his spirit, not a a work of the flesh. That's why we say inspiration, not perspiration. You know, in fact, we've turned it to AC very high tonight, so there's no perspiration. But that's what God is after. He's after inspiration, not perspiration. He doesn't want us to be sweating it out in our flesh and working it up in our flesh and logicking out in our own understanding and our own wisdom. He wants us to be filled with his spirit. He wants us to be empowered by him. And so as we examine these last few things and then close God's instructions to Moses on the mountain, you know, might we see that God wants the same from our service, that he wants to empower us and to work through us, not for us to try to outwork him. Chapter 30, Verse 1. And you shall make an altar to burn incense upon. Of shittim wood shall you make it. A cubit shall be the length thereof, and a cubit the breadth thereof. Four squares shall it be, and two cubits shall be the height thereof, and the horns thereof shall be of the same. And you shall overlay it with pure gold, the top thereof, and the sides thereof round about, and the horns thereof, and you shall make unto it a crown or a border of gold round about. And two golden rings shall you make to it under the crown of it, by the two corners thereof. Upon the sides of it you shall make it, and they shall be for places for the staves to bear it withal. And you shall make the staves of shittim wood, and you shall overlay them with gold. So we are introduced here to a piece of furniture called the altar of incense. They mentioned here you should make an altar to burn incense upon. Incense just means a fragrant smoke, so similar to how we often use it today. You might have thought, but I thought we already covered an altar, the brass altar of sacrifice. You're right. That one was located, if you remember, you have the tabernacle, the building itself, or the tent, that was covered. And inside, you, if you walked in to the entrance, to the right, you would see the table of showbread. To the left, you'd have the golden menorah. And then ahead, you would see the curtain that led to the Holy of Holies. And inside there was the Ark of the Covenant. If you were to step outside, you would have right behind you, or not right behind you, but a ways behind you, would be the altar of sacrifice made of brass. And that's where they would sacrifice the animals and the other offerings that would 
would be brought to the Lord. So this was a smaller altar, not as large as that one, but similar in structure. It was square, three foot high and a foot and a half square all around. And it was overlaid entirely with gold, made of shit and wood at the base and then overlaid entirely with, with gold like the Ark of the Covenant instead of brass like the altar of sacrifice. Now, why is the difference between the two altars? Remember, the altar of sacrifice is where judgment occurred and brass we talked about was you know symbolic of judgment. We kind of looked at some scriptures that talked about that. Jesus's legs shining like brass, like fire. They speak of judgment. That's where judgment took place, where they would put their hand on the animal and the animal would take their place. But now you moved into the holy place and you've got the table on the right, the menorah on the left, and now in front of the curtain is going to go this altar of incense. And it was not an altar of judgment, but rather we'll see beginning in verse six, it had a different purpose. It would be carried in the same way with the two staffs that would go through rings, just like the Ark of the Covenant. That's how it'd be carried. And so in verse six, it begins to tell Moses what to do with it and why it's there. And he shall put it, he says, before the veil that is by the Ark of the Testimony, the Ark of the Covenant, in front of the mercy seat that is over the testimony where I will meet with you. And here's what it's for. Aaron shall burn thereon sweet incense every morning. When he dresses the lamps, he shall burn incense upon it. And when Aaron lights the lamps at evening, he shall burn incense upon it, a perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. So this was in the holy place and its purpose was to have this sweet incense, especially perfumed incense, going at all times. He would go in the morning and he'd light it and then he would come back in the evening and he'd relight it again so that it was just a perpetual incense, this fragrant smoke going up from this altar inside. Now, as you can imagine, that would create a fairly murky environment inside the tent. The idea again is you're in the presence of the Lord. Remember when Isaiah saw the Lord and it says that the train of his robe filled the temple and then the temple was filled with his glory and it says smoke was all around there. The idea is that was to be the similar type of a setting that you're approaching, about to approach approach the very throne room of God. And so this would be in front of the inner veil. And of course, if you open that veil and went in, you would see the Holy of Holies with the Ark of the Covenant. Every morning, the priest had the same task. He would offer a burnt offering of a lamb, and he'd do that on the altar sacrifice, the other one, a grain offering mingled with olive oil, and a drink offering of wine, all of that on the altar sacrifice. We saw that in chapter 29. Then after he did that, he would go into the holy place, and he'd change the wicks on the golden menorah, and then at the same time, he would light the incense on the altar, and then he would do the same exact routine every evening, every morning, every evening, 6 a.m., 6 p.m., this is what the priest would do. Now, why? Well, remember the burnt offering and the drink offering symbolized the total surrender of the nation to God. They poured it all out. The burnt offering, everything burned on the altar. Nobody ate any part of it, only God. So that was symbolic of, Lord, night and day, as a nation, we are totally surrendered to you. The grain offering, which is when we get to Leviticus, we'll learn that symbolized our service to God. Mingled with oil symbolized that their service to God would be accomplished by his strength and his power, because oil was symbolic of his spirit. The golden lampstand would remain lit all day at all times to remind Israel to always be a light to the world. And now the incense. The incense symbolized their prayers, rising in continual dependence upon God for everything that he was the one who provided for them. He was the one who would answer them. He was the one who would care for them. While this was to be the attitude of the nation, it was to be every day represented in these actions by the priests. The priests would do it as the representative of Israel, even though it was to be the attitude of the entire nation. 
Remember, everything points to Jesus. Before we get to that, there's a couple other last few rules here about what it wasn't for. He says, you shall offer no strange incense on it. So you can't just put any incense on it. We'll learn about later the kind of special incense that can be put there. You shall offer no strange or unauthorized incense thereon, only official incense, nor a burnt sacrifice, nor a grain offering. This is not where we offer our service. This is not where we offer our surrender. Neither would say put our drink offering thereon. No blood offerings on here, none of that stuff. This is only for incense. And Aaron, he shall make an atonement upon its horns. It had these horns in each of the four corners. And he would sprinkle it with blood, he says, upon the horns of it once in a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonements. Once in the year shall I make atonement upon it throughout your generations. It is most holy unto the Lord. So this was not an altar for sacrifice. It was an altar for prayer. And the only time blood was placed on this piece of furniture was that one time of the year on the Day of Atonement, which we'll learn about in Leviticus as well. You say, what's the big deal? What's the important difference between these two altars? Well, you know, when you ask people why they think they're going to heaven, you often hear things like, well, you know, I pray to God or I go to church or I do good things. But the misunderstanding here is that prayer is a means to get God's favor. Like God looks down and goes, oh, we'll pray today. All right, check the list, Michael. Did you do anything else today? All right, make sure you add that to the list. Hopefully his good outweighs his bad and he can spend you know, heaven with me. Prayer is not a means of favor with God. Prayer is a benefit of being right with God. You know, in Romans chapter 5, it says that because we're justified by faith, we have access into this grace wherein we stand. We can come to him any time in prayer because of the fact that we are already right with him. See, if I live how I please, but think prayer will somehow appease God, if I try to bring an offering of atonement on this altar, the Lord says, I'm not going to hear your prayers. This is an altar of someone who's right with me already. This is not the altar to make things right with me. See, if I live how I please but think prayer will somehow appease God, I'm horribly mistaken. In Proverbs 28, verse 9, it has a very serious thing to say to the person who would have this mindset. He says, He that turns away his ear from hearing the law, God's word, even his prayers shall be an abomination. Wow. And he says, if you're not going to live for me, but you think you can just kind of appease me through a ritual, you've got it mixed up. See, Jesus died for our sins once for all. I can't appease God by any religious rituals that I do. And when I put my trust in what Jesus did for me, then prayer becomes one of my benefits. In Proverbs 15, verse 8, it says, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. When you're right with the Lord and you've already put your faith in Christ and you come to him, it's his delight. When you come to, to his throne of grace, he's not thinking, what are they doing here? I know what they did today. You got some nerve coming to me today after that conversation you had with your wife. What do you think you're doing here? This is for righteous people. You're right. It is for righteous people and we're righteous in Christ. So when we come to him on that basis, he's delighted to see us. He sees us and he's like, hey, it's my son. We haven't talked in a couple of days. And he's happy to see you and, and he's happy to listen and he's happy to answer because you already are right with him based on your faith in Christ. It's because of the sacrifice on the other altar that Aaron could light the incense and expect God to answer the people's prayers. And once a year, that's why once a year he would sprinkle blood on those horns because it would be a reminder to him to never to fall into that work salvation mentality, to never think it was just a ritual, but to remember there was something that paid for this access. There was something that paid for him to be able to come here and light the incense and know that God would receive their prayers and would answer them. Isn't it sad that Israel forgot all of this by the time that Jesus came? Do you realize that this incense was lit the very day they crucified him? 
priest just kind of bumbles in, does his thing, lights the candlestick, lights the incense, not even realizing that maybe not on the altar that's right out there, but on a hill not too far, a different altar. The, the Savior of the world is dying for his sins. So he can do that, missing the point. Life went on as normal for the priest who missed the point entirely, to which the words of Isaiah chapter 1 are are very applicable where he says to the nation, this is long before Jesus came. He says in Isaiah 1, verses 11 through 15, to what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, says the Lord? Well, why are you bringing all these things? He goes, I am full of burnt offerings of rams. You know, I've had enough. I'm stuffed. I don't need any more food. I'm full of the burnt offerings of rams and of the fat of fed beasts. And I delight not in the blood of bullocks and of lambs or of he goats. When you come to appear before me, Who is required to sit your hand to trample my courts? You come here and trample my courts, my house, with all these offerings. And he might be tempted to say, well, Lord, what do you mean who required it? You did. And he goes, no, 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 no. That is not what this is about. That's not what I asked for. And so he says, bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination to me. Your new moons and your Sabbaths, their feasts. He said, all the calling of assemblies, I I can't be done with them quick enough. It is iniquity, even the solemn meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They're a trouble unto me. I am weary to bear them. And so when you spread forth your hands, thinking, hey, okay, we did what God said. When you spread forth your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Yea, when you make many prayers, I will not hear, because your hands are just full of blood. The only thing that you accomplish is you killed an animal for no reason. And and when we think about that, Anytime we reduce the relationship that Christ bought for us on the cross to a mere religious type of activity, we do the same thing. So how does this point to Jesus, this altar? Well, Romans 5 is is a long passage. I don't want to get into it today, but it mentions that just as one man's sin brought judgment into the world, Adam, right? It says that by one man's obedience, many were made righteous. See, just as one man represented the human race in our fall, Adam, so one man represents us in obedience. Jesus was our great high priest, unlike Adam, fully surrendered to God, fully serving God, a perfect light to the world, and a fully dependent man upon God. All those things, the burnt offering, that was Jesus. The drink offering, that was Jesus. The grain offering with the oil, filled with the Spirit, that was Jesus. Remember, he didn't go do any service till the Spirit came upon him. Then the the golden menorah, he was a perfect light to the world and now the altar of incense. A man dependent upon God for everything through prayer. Jesus, in every way, fulfilled all these pieces. And you know, when you read John chapter 17 and you see him there praying for us as our great high priest, we see him there before the altar of incense in heaven, in a sense, as he is praying for us. And now... Now that he's risen from the dead and he's ascended to the right hand of the Father, he takes on that role in heaven. Every day interceding for us as our high priest that God would answer our prayers. Look at Hebrews chapter 7 with me. Hebrews 7.25, he says, Wherefore, because of him being our high priest, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever lives to make intercession for them. Do you realize that? That the Lord, he's not just praying for you, but he's praying that the Father would answer our prayers. We're crying out and we're saying, Dad, will you please work in this situation, whatever. The Lord is right there next to his Father going, Dad, will you answer that? That's my child. That's my brother. That's the one I redeemed. They put their faith in me. He is interceding for us daily, the Bible says. He ever lives to do so forever. 
Romans 8.34, you know, talks about all the wonderful blessings we have in Christ. We don't have to be afraid of anything. It says, who is he that condemns? We don't have to be afraid of the Lord, you know, condemning us. Who is he that condemns? It says in Romans 8.34. It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. He is our altar of incense. Now in verse 11, we move on to the next part that it talks about here, and it's the ransom money. So back to Exodus chapter 30, verse 11. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, When you take the sum of the children of Israel after their number, then shall they give every man a ransom for his soul unto the Lord, when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. This they shall give, everyone that passes among them, that are numbered half a shekel after the shekel of the sanctuary. And then the shekel is 20 geras. A half shekel shall be the offering to the Lord. This is interesting because it kind of seems a little bit just kind of thrown together at the end here. Like, why is he talking about a census here all of a sudden? But this has to do again with the priesthood. We'll talk about that in a moment. But one thing we have to establish first here is, and some of you may be wondering, but wait a second. I thought Israel wasn't allowed to take a census. I thought they weren't allowed to count the people. You're right. Israel was never to initiate a census. Why did God not allow that? Two reasons. Number one, because they were to trust in the Lord and not their numbers. A challenge when you have two million people walking around who are ready to take over the world. They had to remember that it was God who was going to empower them, and they were not to trust in their own members. Some men trust in horses, some men trust in chariots, but what? We will trust in the name of the Lord our God. If they ever violated this, God says, I will send you a plague. Now, the second reason is because a census back then symbolized ownership. When you wanted to take a census of your people, you were saying, these are my people, and I want to find out how many of them there are. If they or any ruler of Israel were to initiate a census, it would be like saying that the people belonged to him instead of the Lord. Now, we saw that happen when David took a census in 2 Samuel 24, right? Things are going really good. David's finally got peace in the land. He says, hey, Joab, he said, why don't you go out and number the people? And Joab goes, ah... I don't think that's a good idea, David. Anytime Joab thinks it's not a spiritual idea, you might want to listen because he's not the most spiritual of individuals. And he's thinking, David, I love you, but I think that's a bad idea. And David says, do it. And Joab goes out, goes out and does it, and God sends a plague. And they were never to claim ownership because the people always belonged to the Lord. That would be a good lesson for any pastors or leaders out there, never to touch God's people too heavy-handed. This one here, though, is not a man or Israeli-initiated census. It's a God-initiated census, so it's okay. And the reason seems to have to do with a redemption from the priesthood. The word ransom there means the price of a life. See, the idea is that everyone owed their lives to God, so everyone should serve God. But that creates a problem if everyone serves God, because then who's going to take care of the flocks, and who's going to plant the food, and how are we all going to eat? We saw that in the church at Jerusalem. The church at Jerusalem said, hey, we're all going to serve Jesus, so let's sell all our property, which remember, to a Jew, your property was everything. I mean, that was your inheritance. That's what you passed on to your kids. That's where you lived. That's how you got your income. Let's sell everything we got, and let's spread it out among us, and just serve Jesus till he comes back. Problem is, when no one else is making any more money, and then the money runs out, you have no money, <laughs> and you have no food, and you've got nothing. It's why communism doesn't work. It works for the people at the top. But here, the Lord knows that, okay, well, everybody can't serve me, but we shall, our hearts really should be, oh, God, that right? So Aaron's family is the only one and the Levites that would serve. But to show that everyone recognized their lives belonged to God and to 
supply the needs of the tabernacle service, everyone was required to redeem their lives via the census. So that's how you would be counted. You would pay the half shekel. It mentions in verse 13, everyone that's 20 years old and up, it says down in verse 14, everyone that passes among them that are numbered from 20 years old and above shall give an offering unto the Lord. So they would pay a half shekel. Uh, Shekel was not actually a coin, it was a weight so it was about one-fifth of an ounce of silver. So the, the metal that symbolizes redemption, we've already established in a previous study, was silver. And so it would be a fifth ounce of silver would be a half shekel. And that's what you would do to redeem your soul. Notice here, verse 15. The rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less than half a shekel, when they give an offering unto the Lord to make an atonement for your souls. And you shall take the atonement money of the children of Israel, and you shall appoint it for the service of the tabernacle of the congregation, that it may be a memorial unto the children of Israel before the Lord to make an atonement for your souls. So when the Lord would see the offering, he'd be reminded, why aren't they serving? And and again, the Lord doesn't need to be reminded, but it's the idea again of of how he sees us. And he would see it, but me a memorial. They were redeemed through this, and they all don't have to serve. What I find is interesting is that everyone paid the same, rich or poor. What's a soul worth to God? Well, everyone is of equal worth to God, regardless of their socioeconomic status. Every single soul is worth equal to God. And the value is the blood of his own dear son. Do you realize how valuable you are to God? How much he loves you? How priceless you are to him? And me and Beverly were describing, describing, we're having a conversation on the way home from the marriage retreat. And we were just talking about some things, theology and stuff. And, uh, and we're talking about the parable of the pearl of great price. And, you know, for years and years, you know, many people have taught, you know, the pearl of great price is Jesus and you have to sell everything you have to get Jesus. Well, that's not, that doesn't make any sense at all. Do we sell everything we have to get salvation? No, not at all. The Bible says that there was a man who went into the field and he's the one, he's the one who bought the whole field. So he found a treasure in the field and he bought the whole field so he could get the treasure. See, the man that does that is Jesus. You know, we're the treasure that he finds in the field of the world. And the same section of parables that Jesus tells the parable of the pearl of great price, it's the same thing. He's talking about us. Now, you know, when I hear that, you're the pearl of great price, I kind of want to look around and go, who? (laughs) Not me. I'm not worth that. But that's how much the Lord values you. That's how much he loves you. That only the blood of his own dear son could purchase you. How does this all point to Jesus? In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, if you want to turn there with me, we've read it once before, but it applies here as well. It says, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your vain conversation received by traditions from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest revealed in these last times for you. Listen, before time began, the Lord planned to die for us on the cross. That's why we can see all this stuff here. None of it's coincidence. It was all planned before creation. All planned before time began. And so here we see it all in the tabernacle, its pieces, its furniture, and even in the ransom money. Well, now we get to verse 17, and we move to the final piece of furniture that was in the tabernacle, and it's the brass laver. Verse 17, and the Lord spoke unto Moses saying, you shall also make a laver, which was a a container for washing, kind of a big tub, but more like a a big coffee cup kind of tub. It was not one you'd kind of lay in long wise, but you would reach down into and you'd scrub and wash like that. A laver of brass and then also his foot or the stand of brass was actually two pieces. 
to wash withal. And you shall put it between the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, and you shall put water therein. For Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet thereat. When they go into the tabernacle of the congregation, they shall wash with water that they die not. Or when they come near to the altar to minister, to burn offering made by fire unto the Lord. So shall they wash their hands and their feet that they die not. And it shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his seed throughout their generations. So now we have the final piece of furniture that would be placed right in front of the tent entrance into the tabernacle. Remember, on the outside, it was not covered. You had the court of the tabernacle that was uncovered, but it would have kind of curtains all around it. And then you have the entrance. So you'd walk in and right in front of you would be the brass altar. That's where the sacrifices took place. If you walked past that would then be this brass tub, this brass laver, and that would be right in front of the tabernacle. And it says here that the purpose of it was twofold. For the priests to clean themselves before they went into the holy place. So it's after they had made an offering unto the Lord. They would have to get all cleaned up before they go into the holy place. And then if they were going to go up to the altar to start doing the sacrifices, they would have to wash there as well. So both acts of service required them to be untainted. Both their the offerings, and then both their service inside the tabernacle, or unless they die. You say, well, why would they die? Well, they would be covered with the blood of the offering, which would be a reminder of sin. So they had to cleanse all that off and go in. And then if they're going to go up to do it, they had to be hold, the person offering it had to be holy as well. So you had to clean up your stuff as well, and then you could go make an offering. So there was lots of bathing and cleaning going on. How does this point to Jesus? We'll turn back to Hebrews chapter 7. We'll keep reading after verse 25. Jesus was holy and pure in every way, completely clean before the Lord. He didn't require a bath, spiritually speaking. For such a high priest became us who is holy, undefiled. Harmless means innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners and made higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests did to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's. He didn't have to have an offering for his own sins. For this he did once when he offered up himself. For the law makes men high priests which have infirmity. But the word of the oath which was since the law makes the son who is consecrated forevermore. He is a high priest that doesn't need to keep going back and forth and cleaning up and taking the bath. He was perfectly pure. And when he made the offering of himself, that was perfectly pure. And therefore, no more offerings are required. It's been paid in full. Jesus is our perfect high priest. He doesn't have to continually cleanse the altar with sacrifice. He offered a blameless life unto God, a pure and undefiled offering that led to a perfectly spotless sacrifice. Now he constantly prays for us on our behalf. What an amazing high priest we have in Jesus. While we are in this time of a global pandemic, don't be afraid to call and ask for assistance or for prayer. Our office may be closed, but you can still reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.